Hello, and welcome to the Harrison Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. First of all, I'd like to thank you for joining me for my second batch of episodes for this podcast. I had a great deal of fun working on the first group and got positive feedback, so I decided to go ahead and give a second round of episodes a go. Unlike the first episodes where we explored various topics about or related, sometimes very tangentially, to William Henry Harrison, ninth president of the United States, this series of episodes has its focus completely on Harrison. In order to better acquaint you with Old Tippecanoe, I've decided to do 10 episodes going through Harrison's life, culminating in finally talking about his death in 1841. I hope it proves informative and look forward to hearing your feedback either on the comments section of the blog site or via email at harrisonpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Without further ado, let's get started, and what better place to start than at the very beginning? William Henry Harrison was born on February 9, 1773, as a British citizen in the colony of Virginia. He was the youngest son of Benjamin Harrison V and Elizabeth Bassett Harrison. Benjamin was, at this time, a representative in the Virginia House of Burgesses, and, not long after William's birth, traveled to Philadelphia to participate in the Continental Congress, where he would join many of his fellow delegates in signing the Declaration of Independence in 1776, forever changing the course of the future for his son and the nation as a whole. However, for his formative years, Berkeley Plantation would be the center of Harrison's life. It had been the homestead of the Harrison family since his grandfather, Benjamin IV, had purchased the land in 1722. Construction on the main house is believed to have occurred sometime around 1726 due to a date carved into a panel in the gable. With a few verbal footnotes added by me, biographer James A. Green describes Berkeley in his 1941 biography of Harrison as follows, quote, The situation of Berkeley is striking. It stands on a terrace a quarter of a mile from the broad James with a fine view of the river. It has no back door in the sense of an inferior rear entrance, for the door which opened towards the James and the door at the other end of the hall, which opened toward the land, were of equal importance. Instead of one house, there were three, all set on a line with an interval of about 100 feet between them. The central house was family dwelling, larger and more imposing than the others, all built of dark red brick, now charmingly softened by time. Smaller houses that flanked the mansion were exactly the same. They were identical in size and shape. That to the left, as the visitor approaches from the land, was known as the bachelor's house. It contained eight rooms and was a guest house. The other house to the right was the kitchen, storehouse and sleeping quarters of the domestic help, i.e. slaves. This house was connected with the mansion by a tunnel. Certainly, there never was a smell of cooking in the Harrison household, but formal meals could have been achieved only by the aid of a small army of servants. Again, just a reminder, these were slaves. I've put some pictures on the blog entry for this post, so please visit whhpodcast.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y, dot com to check those out. William's father had been in charge of Berkeley since 1745, and though he managed to see the family through, between economic conditions of the time and his own pursuit of a public career, Benjamin V was not as successful at his management of the family estate as his father. Plantations in Virginia and Maryland focused on tobacco saw their production drop during the course of the war, and even when a recovery began, prices remained low due to economic decisions made in Britain and France, the two largest importers of American tobacco. Likewise, Virginia's economy during and after the war found itself in an unstable situation due to the instability of the government under the Articles of Confederation and the large number of depreciated treasury notes that had been issued by the state government. 
Being located just 20 miles upstream from Jamestown, the family came under threat when the infamous American-turned-British general, Benedict Arnold, made his way to Richmond in 1781. Richmond had only recently been named Capital Virginia, but this new stature meant that it was squarely in the British sites, as opposed to the previous capital city of Williamsburg. The British ended up landing a mile east of Berkeley at Westover Plantation and marched on to Richmond. After doing their damage there, setting fire to the city, they began their retreat, which brought them to Harrison's doorstep. The family had removed themselves to safety before Arnold and his forces arrived. Some accounts that i found are more dramatic than others, but it seems like, from what I've been able to find, that it wasn't a last-minute race through the back as the British showed up at the front door. No Hollywood treatment here, I'm afraid. However, the family would not escape completely unscathed. Arnold ordered Berkeley to be set ablaze and took possession of nearly a third of Harrison's slaves before marching on. One can only speculate on what the then seven, nearly eight-year-old William thought of what was going on. To date, I found no primary documents of his speaking to the event. However he processed this, Berkeley was eventually restored and the family went on. Benjamin Harrison would have much more on his plate than restoring Berkeley, though. At this very time that his family and livelihood were in danger, the governor of Virginia, a guy who you may have heard of named Thomas Jefferson, asked Harrison, in his capacity as Speaker of the House of the Virginia General Assembly, to travel to Philadelphia in order to seek assistance from Congress for the defense of Virginia. However, Congress would prove helpless, as there was, as Harrison reported to Jefferson, quote, not a shilling in the Continental Treasury. So Harrison would turn to that other great Virginian, George Washington, and plead with him to do what he could to help to alleviate the dire situation of the state as, quote, the enemy mean to overrun us. Harrison asserts to Washington that, quote, next to Congress, we, meaning the Virginians, look up to you for assistance, not doubting, but you will do everything within your line to forward the service. Harrison would find himself with even more on his plate later that same year, as he had just been elected to assume the seat that Jefferson had recently held as governor of Virginia. During this time, the needs of others would have to take precedence, as he was the first to lead, quote, the crumbling world of the great Virginia planters after the Revolution. It does seem like stress, be it with his personal life or his public service, did start to take a toll on Benjamin during this time. Harrison scholars note that, quote, Colonel Harrison had begun to change, and that, quote, there are faint suggestions in documents from the 1770s on that he may have had what is now termed a drinking problem. Edmund Pendleton wrote to a friend during Benjamin's governorship that, quote, Governor Harrison is, as usual, very angry. Given the challenges faced by Governor Harrison in the post-war world, it is easy to see how stress would creep in. The governor had to deal with an immediate problem of British merchants who remained in Yorktown after Cornwallis's surrender and were seeking compensation for goods purchased by Americans, then with the more long-term issue of reconciling loyalists who had not fought against the Patriots, but who now remained in Virginia after the war. For the former, the governor ordered the merchants out of the state without payment. For the latter, the governor was more lenient and facilitated the easing of legal restrictions that had been put in place against loyalists during the war. Possibly the most important act of Benjamin Harrison's during his governorship was the relinquishing of Virginia's claim to what would become the Northwest Territory, and indeed all of its western land claims to the Confederation government. Little could he have imagined the impact this decision would have on the life of his youngest son. Benjamin Harrison's tenure as governor did at least provide the family a temporary home in the governor's mansion while work was being done to restore Berkeley, and allowed the family to be together, an experience that had been rare for the Harrisons during the Revolutionary years. 
despite Virginian planner-class moors of the father taking an active role in the upbringing of his sons. It seems that, for William, having been born just prior to the outbreak of the Revolution, and his father spending so much of those years in public service, both in Philadelphia and in Richmond, he missed out on a good bit of that one-on-one -on -one time with his father in his formative years. In the family pecking order, it seems like William Henry was rather low down on it. In his first biography, written for the Portfolio Literary Magazine and published in 1815, his early life is described in one sentence, which reads as follows, quote, William Henry, who entered upon his education after his elder brothers had finished theirs and been settled in business, was at an early age placed in a grammar school from which in due time he was sent to Hampton College, that's Hampton Sydney College nowadays, where he remained till he completed his 14th year when he moved on to an academy in Southampton County. As noted, quote, Though the property of Mr. Benjamin Harrison was large, it was not sufficient to place every branch of a numerous offspring in a state of opulent independence suitable to their wanted standing and according to the customs of the society in which they lived. Besides depraving him of his father for much of his upbringing, Benjamin's, quote, office brought nothing but glory. While he was asserting his country's independence, he was consuming his family's patrimony. The effects of this would shape William's destiny, but for the moment, let's return to the boy Harrison. Harrison biographer Borum supposes, due to a cousin's diary entry written during Harrison's early years, that William was known as Billy to his family and friends in his earlier years. Indeed, Borum's biography, entitled A Child of the Revolution, William Henry Harrison and His World, 1773 to 1798, is the first and to date only attempt to delve into Harrison's early life prior to his assuming his first public office. Borm gathers up various resources and attempts to craft a picture of the young Harrison, noting instances that suggest that he, quote, might have been amusing company. Much of what we can ascertain about his earliest days comes from knowledge of similar Virginia planter families, and judging the later impact of assumed similar events in Harrison's upbringing. For example, the children of Virginia gentry were expected to be knowledgeable of the Greek and Roman classics, and in Harrison's later public writing and speeches, we see him trying to put this knowledge on full display. For those of you who listened to the episodes on the inaugural speech, between the proconsuls and the lengthy discussions of Greek democratic states, we can say with some degree of certainty that Harrison received this instruction as a child, like other sons in Virginia planter families. Also, during his army days, he was noted for bringing Cicero along with other history books during his travels in the Old Northwest. For his innermost thoughts in these early years, though, we can only wildly speculate. As with other children of planters, he was highly likely to have been exposed to enslaved peoples from an early age and to have counted enslaved children among his playmates, especially since he was so much younger than his siblings. His next closest sibling in terms of age was Sarah Harrison, who had been born in 1770. His brothers, Benjamin VI and Carter Bassett Harrison, were born in 1755 and 1756 respectively, and were thus already in their late teens when Billy was born. What would he have felt about his friends and adults who took care of him not being in charge of their own destinies? A clue to that is not far off in the Harrison story, but we'll get to that directly. For the time being, let's consider his education. As previously stated, he was, quote, placed in a grammar school early on. It's not certain what kind of school this was. Typically among Virginia gentry, male children at the very least received early formal education from tutors, but, as noted by Borum, quote, they were hard to find during the early years of the Revolution. 
Borm speculates that Elizabeth Bassett Harrison, his mother, may have taught him early on, but we have no existing documentation of his education until he was apparently enrolled at Hampton Sydney Academy, again, now Hampton Sydney College, at the age of 11. Even this, however, is not well documented. In fact, only three original documents remain which note Harrison's attendance, besides the 1815 biography of Harrison, which was based on material provided by Harrison. And one of these remaining sources is torn, so it only reveals that someone whose name ended in R-R-I-S-O-N delivered a performance of Cicero's Pro Archia Poeta in April 1786. Harrison's cousin Randolph Harrison also attended the school for a year. But Borum concludes in the course of his research that it was William and not Randolph to whom this reference referred. Again, one has to wonder what the young Harrison thought of being sent away to Hampton Sydney. Though still rather close to home, the south side of area of Virginia was, quote, a newly settled area whose character was summed up in the name of one of its plantations, Old Dumont, meaning outside the world. The South Side was a region populated mostly by the younger sons of Tidewater planters who were just beginning their tobacco plantations, a region of thick forest and red clay roads that wound confusingly through them. This would have been a new experience for Billy, who had not previously traveled outside of the Tidewater. Given his later plunge into even further wilderness, could it have been that he enjoyed this first venture away from home? We can only speculate. The one definite that we know about Billy's time at Hampton, Sydney, is that at one point he was treated by Dr. Francis Joseph Mathieu in 1785 and again in 1787. The 1785 treatment seems like it was rather severe and appears to have involved an operation. He was treated by the doctor for six weeks and was prescribed a number of laxatives, which Borm concludes, quote, suggests a gastrointestinal problem, which would be consistent with other sources that show Harrison to have suffered from delicate digestion all his life. 1787 treatment ended with a prescription of laxatives and ointments. It is from the bills from these treatments that we know that Billy lived in the Red House, which was Hampton Sydney's main building at the time. None of the college buildings from the 18th century survive at Hampton Sydney, but the college can boast, quote, the oldest four-story dormitory in the country, still in use as a residence hall, Cushing Hall, which was begun in 1822. For Harrison, his experience was described by Borum based on accounts of other students at the time as follows, quote, he shared his sleeping quarters, barracks fashion, with four or five other students and perhaps one of the tutors. Their adolescent lifestyle could be labeled as either Spartan simplicity or rustic squalor. Slaves from the college steward's staff lit fires in the bedrooms, brought water for washing from the college spring, and periodically washed the students' bedding to get rid of the bedbugs. The Red House had no bathroom. To avoid defiling any part of the college with urine or excrements, for which they could receive a public reprimand, the boys had to make for the privy or the surrounding woods. For now, we'll leave Billy Harrison in the woods of the South Side. I hope you'll join me next time for an episode I like to call Here and There or Maybe Over There, The Wandering Start of William Henry Harrison. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please feel free to contact me at harrisonpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Also, feel free to check out the source notes for this episode and other supplemental materials at whhpodcast.blueberry, that's blueberry without the E's, The podcast is on both iTunes and Stitcher, so if you're not already, check us out there. If you like the show and are so inclined, please add a review on iTunes. Even just a star rating will help to push the show up on the listings so that more folks can learn about General Harrison and his times. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, friends.